Section 29 of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief, Daniel Gregory Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia. Within the limits of a single chapter, there is no space to discuss these great works in detail, nor to point to the ways in which Bach's genius manifested itself in each of them. We shall therefore give a brief analysis of that genius in general, and then proceed to show the position Bach occupies in the course of the development of music. Bach's skill in polyphonic writing is perhaps unequalled both in its minute perfection and in its breadth and power. It is evident in nearly everything he wrote, be it the simplest of the two-part inventions, or the mighty choruses in the B minor mass, the fugues for organ, or the fugues for solo violin. Within the most confined limits, or ranging over mighty expanses, it differs more in degree than in kind from that of his predecessors and his contemporaries. In spite of the rapidly spreading domination of the monodic style, which was the style resulting from the Italian opera, the style of melody and simple accompaniments in chords, the polyphonic style still retained the allegiance of serious musicians, and even, in fact, of those who were less serious. All composers, probably all church organists, in the time of Bach could write fugues, double or single, could even improvise fugues, could write canons, wrote them as a pastime. Such skill was acquired almost in childhood, aided largely by copying volumes of music. Many composers discarded it altogether in writing for the public, many made a false show of it. It was, however, a manner of expression still common to the time, almost an idiom. So, though Bach's skill could amaze even those who had been brought up to write fugues as daily exercise, it appeared to his contemporaries something as a matter of course, and to historians and critics, allied with the new schools, a positive detriment, a failing. At the present day, the idiom in its naturalness is so far lost that our ears can hardly understand it, we no longer listen to polyphonic music without very special training. We do not follow it naturally, almost instinctively. The skill amazes, does not immediately express. It was, of course, thoroughly natural to Bach, but it was no more to him than an art, than, let us say, the art of speech, for he was wont to liken the interweaving of several parts in music to a conversation upon a given subject. Bach's skill in polyphony is but a manner of speech, most faultless and subtle and powerful. Others acquired the manner, not perfectly, but none had the ideals, the emotions to express which have filled his works with warmth, with vitality, with actual life. Thus his melodies are beautiful and expressive. Take, for example, the subjects of the fugues in the first part of the well-tempered clavichord. Here one might reasonably expect type melodies mechanical phrases inexpressive in themselves, worthless except as polyphonic material, the sort of phrases handed on from composer to composer, almost note for note, mere formulas. But one is astonished by the endless variety and freshness. All are original. Even the shortest, those which are hardly more than a kernel of melody, have a distinction, such as the subjects of the very first fugue in C major, of the serious, indescribably sad figures in C-sharp minor and E-flat minor, and the exalted, inspired fugue in B-flat minor, 
a more passionately expressive phrase is hardly to be found in music than that upon which the fugue in g minor is built a more graceful melody than the subject of the fugue in c sharp major more delicate or humorous than those of the c minor and b flat major fugues these touches of pure melodic expressiveness are but preludes to the great melodies of the cantatas and the passion the melodies mein glaubiges herze from the pentecost cantata only weep and have mercy lord from the passion according to saint matthew are no more conspicuous than many others for their expanse and the depth of feeling which breathes in them the grace of certain melodies in the suites for violin and for cello alone are captivating the aria for the g-string from the second orchestral suite most profound and there is a type of melody especially dear to him such as is found in the middle movement of the sonatas and concertos for violin wonderfully free rhapsodical as though improvised in general he avoided the elaborate ornamental roulades characteristic of the italian aria even when writing in that form in the few cases in which he did employ them they are expressive and gently realistic in all his work there is evidence of a melodic genius of the purest kind often not vocal it is true and often wound in a polyphonic web but astonishingly genuine and inspired though the quality of a great part of the music of bach is meditative or not seldom mystical parts of it are conspicuous for their rhythmical lightness and delicacy especially the suites for violin and cello have rhythmical animation which is irresistible the dance movements which compose the last parts of the ouverture à la manière française and movements in the english suites depend almost wholly for their charm on the incisiveness and zest of their rhythm nor is such sprightliness lacking in the fugues though in polyphonic music it is usually unemphasized the fugue in d major in the first part of the well-tempered clavichord might be called a fugue in rhythm the fugue in f minor in the second part too is almost wholly guided by a playful rhythm it is to the music of bach therefore that one should look to find the polyphonic style set free of its proverbial heaviness and inertia light and airy as laughter and true wit strong as the march of an army but to harmony more than to all else in music the touch of genius of bach brought new life and a splendour that can never grow dull it is as a harmonist that he stands the father of modern music his pupils have told us that the first task to which he set them was exercise not in counterpoint but in harmonization of simple chorale melodies if one tries to analyse the difference between a bach fugue and other fugues it is not to be found in the superior workmanship and finish nor save little in the melodic and rhythmical inspiration but in the background of harmony in harmony lie the mystery and wonder of bach's imperishable music it is half the strength of its form one might well ask what is a fugue without bach the seeds of it are in the old vocal polyphonic style passages in which one voice imitated another at the interval of a fifth or fourth were perhaps suggested to composers by voices singing the same words in turn and the device was taken over by organists in the late sixteenth and early seventeenth century and used in ricciacari and canzone with no notion of form and balance it was used in preludizing to the singing of the congregation but had no true independent existence apart from the chorale to which it led 
it was used as the second part of the so-called French overture. Experimenting in one way or another, composers gradually built up a fairly definite instrumental form of fugue. But the fugues, notably the organ fugues, of even the greatest organists before Bach, lacked logical construction. Buxtehuders were built, as Albert Schweitzer has said, on a principle of laissez-aller. There seemed to be no good reason, according to Dr. Hugo Riemann, why any of them should not end or should not go on. It was Bach at last who gave to the fugue perfect proportion and organic unity. Principles of a form in music more clear-cut than any German forms he acquired, as we have said in Weimar, from a study of Italian and French masterpieces, but he based all his forms on a foundation of harmony, and to all his works gave proportion and logic sprung from harmony alone. Sir Hubert Parry, in his study of Johann Sebastian Bach, has demonstrated by careful analysis what a surprising number of preludes in the well-tempered clavichord are fundamentally progressions of chords. The name alone of this great series is suggestive, as we shall later prove. The clearest example of this harmonic prelude is the very first, that in C major. Hardly less clear are the second, the third, the sixth, the fifteenth, the twenty-first, and the twenty-third. Practically all, indeed, are upon the same plan, though in those mentioned the plan is clearest. This is, of course, no invention of Bach. The prelude grew out of a few chords rolled by an organist or player of the harpsichord or lute to claim the attention of his audience. The point is that Bach has made out of these preludes music of ineffable beauty merely by the gift of his genius in harmony. The sequences of his chords may be as modern as Wagner's, chromatic alterations even more subtle, or as in the organ works they may move through broad diatonic highways, powerful in suspensions and magnificent in delays. And as to his power of expression through harmony, let one listen to the recitatives of the St. Matthew Passion, one of the immortal, unfathomable creations of man's genius. Consider how they move on, phrase after phrase, page after page, bearing the whole weight of a mighty composition and unaccompanied save by a few scattered chords. It may well be doubted if any art has or could have added one touch more of inexplicable, unspeakable beauty to the story of the passion, save only these few scattered chords of Bach's genius. We have already observed that all great composers from the time of Beethoven have acknowledged Bach as the father of modern music, but this relationship which his descendants have so gladly acknowledged is, on the whole, general and intangible. The reason is partly that Bach invented no new forms, and that the forms which he chose, and the style in which he wrote, passed out of circulation, so to speak, immediately after his death. The fugue, the cantata, and the passion he brought to the highest point it was possible for these forms to attain. They have rarely been attempted since with near enough success to suggest even imitation. The fugues of Mozart, Beethoven and Brahms are essentially different from the fugues of Bach. Mendelssohn fell far short of the master, whom he, more almost than all others, worshipped. César Franck has been compared to Bach, but is curiously unlike him. The cantata and the passion grew up to Bach and then stopped. The cantata because even in the hands of Bach 
it was an uncouth hybrid, neither opera, which is itself an illogical mixture, nor church music. The passion, because, as Bach left it, it is as unattainable as the sun. As far as form and outward show are concerned, therefore, Bach's position in the history of music is that of the culmination, the ultimate consummation, of certain styles and forms now obsolete. To understand his appearance in the history of music, one must step back into the history of the 17th century in German music, a history strangely complicated with that of Protestantism, Lutheran hymns, and cantata texts, inextricably associated with the church and with the organ loft. In the growth of church music in Germany, Bach had not one nor two predecessors. A dozen different courses converged in him. Strangely enough, of the music of the one man before him with whom he might have seemed related, Heinrich Schütz, he knew little or nothing. All others worthy of the name of composers, however, contributed some share to his development. All the great organists from the time there were great organists led to Bach, step by step, unmistakably. Every new phase of form, every new device of virtuosity, but paved the way for one who was so supremely great as to cast them all into shade or oblivion. All hymn writers, all composers of chorales led the same way. The Protestant religion found its perfect artistic expression in Bach, not in the cantatas, but in the chorale fantasies for organ, the motets and the passion according to St. Matthew. Catholic art contributed its share. He copied out masses by Palestrina, and by other men now forgotten, such as Lotti and Caldara. For a good part of the Lutheran service, especially at St. Thomas Church in Leipzig, was practically Catholic in form. The Kyrie, the Gloria, Credo, Benedictus, Sanctus, and Agnus Dei had their place in the ritual. And what is more, German composers, and Bach was no exception, seldom troubled to set them to new music, but adapted music of the earlier Italian writers to the new German words. The enormous number of cantatas was owing to the fact that the form had grown out of a native German custom of singing hymns between the reading of the Gospel and the Credo, on the one hand, and the sermon on the other, and composers were given opportunity to set texts not already time-worn. The history of these texts is one full of sad failures to achieve a truly artistic form, of futile efforts to reconcile chorale and hymn with the new operatic style, of bad verse and trivial mechanical sentiment. Bach was constantly harassed by problems of text, varying in his choice between an old-style Bible text woven with the strophes of the chorale hymns, by far the best, though least suited to the operatic style of music which had established itself in the church, and a free text developed from a line of passage in the Bible, consisting of strophic arias and passages for recitative in the so-called madrigal style, a loose versification. The artistic perfection of the Passion is due no little to the fact that he himself supervised the arrangement of the text, the introduction of strophic verse for arias, and madrigal style for ariosos and the chorales. The history of passion music leads to Bach, and further than that it cannot go. Way back in the Middle Ages the story of the passion was chanted in the churches, sometime, usually on Good Friday, in Holy Week. The words of the evangelist, of actors in the drama, 
and of Christ were chanted by a priest or deacon in the monotonous reciting tone, and the choir was given the ejaculations of the crowd. Later the words of Christ, the evangelist, Pilate, Peter, etc., were allowed to different chanters, and with the growth of the operatic style, the monotonous chant was changed to more expressive recitative. This intrusion of the operatic style was at times bitterly opposed, and the greatest German composer before Bach, Heinrich Schütz, was among the reactionaries, though he had received his training in Italy under Giovanni Gabrielli and Monteverdi himself. However, the influence of opera was too strong for the conservative clergy, and not only did recitative, aria, and dramatic choruses come to play a part in the singing of the story of the Passion, but instruments were introduced into the accompaniment, and the whole became practically a drama. The need for texts suitable for treatment in recitative and aria finally led to versified arrangements of the biblical narrative itself, as well as to the introduction of strophic stanzas, interpretive of the mood or action of the story. A new character, the so-called Daughter of Zion, was introduced as a convenient spokeswoman for the congregation. Such were the theatrical arrangements made by C. F. Hunold, known as Menance, and by B. H. Brockers, a town councillor of Hamburg, whose arrangements were set to music by Kaiser, Matheson, Telemann, and Handel. Chorale melodies and hymns found no place in these passions. Schütz had employed them at the beginning and the end of his settings, as introduction and epilogue. They were apparently first woven into the body of the work by a little-known composer, Johann Sebastiani, about 1672. The arrangement which Bach finally used for his St. Matthew Passion was a combination of these earlier styles. For the narrative, he reverted to the biblical text, divided among the various characters. He retained the interpretive arias which, in the midst of the story, dwell for a time on the suffering, on the horror of it all, and their effect upon man. He included, among the singers, the Daughter of Zion. The chorus was used for the utterances of the crowd, with considerable restraint, and throughout the work, for richly harmonised chorales which served to draw the congregation into the tragedy, even though they were but once or twice given a voice in them. At the beginning and the end, massive double choruses, into the first of which a chorale melody was woven, opened and concluded the story. Orchestra and organ made up the accompaniment. All these various elements he combined with unerring sense of proportion and fitness, and with no inconsistencies and no histrionic glamour, so that the work stands perfect as a piece of art, and as the purest expression in music of the Lutheran religion. In his general treatment of the orchestra, Bach is allied so much more closely to the past than to the future, that in this regard he can be said to have had practically no influence upon his successors. Before his death, the Mannheim school, led by Johann Stamitz, was already pointing the way toward a new treatment of the orchestra, which was to be taken up and developed by Haydn, Mozart and Beethoven. Bach differs from these later men, not so much in a lack of appreciation of tone colour, as in his forcing all instruments, irrespective of their peculiar capabilities, to conformity in a polyphonic style much influenced by the organ. The result is that trumpets and oboes, for examples, are made to play rapid, agile figures suitable only to the violin. 
all instruments are treated in the same way, may be required to take equal and similar parts in the music. This is, of course, distinctly old-fashioned. Purely technical reasons would prevent any composer of the new school from writing for the oboes as he would write for the violins. Sonority and colour, too, ousted the old polyphonic ideal. Bach was not, however, deaf to orchestral colour. Often in the accompaniments to cantatas and other vocal works, the colouring is rich and unusual, and unusual combinations of solo instruments in the Brandenburg concertos seem to show him on voyages of discovery, so to speak, into the effects of combinations of different timbres. The two series of orchestral works are the Brandenburg concertos and the overtures, both written during his stay at Kursen. The names themselves speak for the now distant past of orchestral music. The name concerto then signified a composition written for a small group of solo instruments called the concertino, accompanied by or alternating with a larger group called the tutti. For instance, in the second concerto, the solo group is composed of trumpet, flute, oboe and violin, the tutti being in all cases made up of strings. The form is Corellian, the relatively modern treatment of a solo instrument in a concerto, writing for it to show off its special qualities and technical peculiarities, is hardly suggested. Tutti and Concertino, having to play the same musical material in the same polyphonic style, offering principally contrast between sonority and delicacy, though, as we have said, the element of tone colour plays a part. It must be added, however, that the long passage for harpsichord at the end of the first movement of the fifth concerto is very similar to modern cadenzas. The treatment of all parts is consistently polyphonic. The same is true of the four overtures. These compositions are in reality suites, having as the first two movements the two characteristics of the French overture invented by Lully, one slow and serious, the other an extended allegro in fugal style. The following movements are in dance forms and rhythms. They are scored for the customary brass, wood and strings, employed here not so much for their specialities as for contrasts of sonority and delicacy. Bach has not, therefore, contributed in matters of style and form to the development of music after his time, nor to the growth of orchestral music, which was the distinguishing feature of the age which followed immediately upon his death. This is due, as we have said, to the fact that the style and forms which were his own inheritance passed out of circulation. In many cases, too, his work was of such unique greatness that no imitation of it could come near enough to suggest more than most vaguely an influence. Copies of his style but emphasise its remoteness, both in time and quality. Certain works must remain forever unique because their peculiar perfection must always keep them in a class by themselves. Among these there are none more striking than the works for solo violin and for solo violoncello, works which have no counterpart in music. Still, we are not limited to intangible influences of melody and harmony in noting the effect which his compositions have had upon his followers. In two ways at least he gave a definite impulse to the course of music. He reorganised the system of fingering keyboard instruments and invented a satisfactory and universally accepted method of equal temperament. About the time Friedemann, 
his firstborn son, was nine years old, Bach began to compose for him the book of pieces known as the Little Clavier Book. It is what we should call today a graded collection of short pieces intended to perfect the already striking abilities of his son. Beginning with the simplest elements, he introduced difficulties by degrees until the last pieces, in polyphonic style, demand a very considerable skill. The most interesting passages are those in which Bach has indicated the fingering, for they prove that he reorganized all the systems of fingering in use in his day and perfected one of his own upon which future developments are based. His chief innovation is in the manner of using the thumb. Up to the time of Couperin, players of keyed instruments used only the four fingers of the hand. The thumb hung idle. The position must have been stiff and awkward, and it is hard to understand how such brilliant performers as the North German organists ever overcame the difficulties of it. Yet Bach himself told his son Emmanuel that in his youth he had seen great organists play who never used the thumb except for the widest stretches. Couperin's famous book on the art of playing the harpsichord appeared in 1717, the very year Bach went to Curtin. In it he advocated the use of the thumb, but over the fingers not under them. Bach was one of the first to appreciate the advantages of passing the thumb under the hand. It is hardly possible that he invented the practice. Many of the oldest works for the harpsichord must have called for a use of the thumb, and the contemporary works of Domenico Scarlatti would have been almost insurmountably difficult without it. But in theory the use of the thumb under the hand was avoided, and Bach's little clavier book contains probably the first open recognition of the advantages of so using it, no matter what the actual practice of virtuosi had been up to that time. One will observe that Bach did not abandon the old system, and that many passages marked by him are to be played in the old way, that is, by passing the long fingers, chiefly the middle finger, over the short ones, but he laid the foundations of the new. The most famous of players in the next generation was his own son Emmanuel, whose book on playing the harpsichord was the standard authority down to the time that the harpsichord was finally supplanted by the pianoforte. Haydn and Mozart undoubtedly profited by it, and thus the methods of the father were spread abroad through the son and played a considerable part in the development of music for the pianoforte. The well-tempered clavichord is unquestionably an epoch-making work. Footnote. The clavichord was suitable only for the most intimate sort of music. It differed from the harpsichord in that the tone of it was produced not by a plucking of the strings, but by a pressure brought to bear on them by little uprights attached to the key levers. The tone was very slender, but sweet and within its limitations capable of fine shading. A varying pressure of the key produced that tremolo which on the violin is called vibrato, and gave the tone a delicate warmth wholly lacking in the clean-cut, frosty tone of the harpsichord, and indeed in the rich tone of the pianoforte. End of footnote. It is, as is well known, a series of preludes and fugues in all major and minor keys. The term well-tempered refers to Bach's method of tuning the clavichord, which for the first time made such an unbounded use of harmony possible. It will be remembered that the first keyboards had only those keys which are today white, 
sounding only the diatonic tones of the modes. The first chromatic alteration allowed in these modes was the B-flat, which was practically forced upon musicians in order to avoid the augmented interval between F and B-natural, an interval excruciating to their ears. So the black key between A and B was the first to find its place on the keyboard, and it was tuned in the relation of a perfect fourth with the F below. E-flat seems to have been the next black key, and was tuned in the relation of a perfect fourth to the B-flat. The other black keys were added one by one, nearly always in exact relation to some one of the white keys or the original diatonic notes of the modes. F-sharp in that of a perfect fifth with the B below, G-sharp in that of a perfect major third with E, C-sharp in the same relation with A. Inasmuch as all these intervals were mathematically exact, and such was the idea of tuning all through the Middle Ages and nearly to the time of Bach, the black keys were in perfect relation only with one or more of the white keys, and often quite out of relation with each other. The intervals between them were very noticeably out of tune and false. When, during the 17th century, our harmonic system of transposing keys finally supplanted the old modal system, composers for the harpsichord and the organ still found themselves limited by their keyboards to three sharp keys and two flat, so long as their instruments were perfectly tuned. A cursory glance at some of the old harpsichord music shows that composers did not by any means submit to such a restriction, and we must presume that, unless they were willing to endure the sound of many hideous imperfections, they developed in practice at any rate some system of tuning which softened or tempered them. Bach, therefore, is not the inventor of the first tempered tuning, but it is doubtful if any composer before him had worked out such a satisfactory system as his, which has been called equal temperament, and which amounts practically to the division of the keyboard octave into twelve equal, though slightly imperfect, intervals. Only the octave remained strictly in tune. The imperfections of the other intervals were so slight, however, as to be hardly perceptible. Thus the black keys of the keyboard came to represent two notes, different in theory, the sharp of the note below and the flat of the note above, and by such a compromise composers for the instrument were enabled to modulate freely through all keys. Bach must be acknowledged the first great musician to recognise the inestimable value of such a liberation, in proof of which he wrote the first series of the well-tempered clavichord. The fugues, notably, are enriched by the most beautiful modulations, and in this regard the collection may be said to be almost the foundation upon which all subsequent music has been built, and to contain the seeds from which the most soaring harmonies of Beethoven, Chopin, and even Wagner have sprung. Thus we are brought back by the well-tempered clavichord to the crowning glory of his genius, his gift for harmony. Beethoven knew the well-tempered clavichord. He is said to have won his first distinction as a pianist by his playing of those preludes and fugues in Vienna, and Beethoven called Bach the forefather of harmony. Probably no collection of pieces has been so carefully studied and sounded again and again by generation after generation of composers, and probably no other set of pieces will ever prove so impervious to every influence of time. It is like an eternal spring, forever fresh, 
forever marvellous. Scarcely less wonderful are the collections of two and three-part inventions. Both these and the preludes and fugues were written as exercises, the one as, in Bach's own words, as an honest guide by which the lovers of the clavier, but particularly those who desire to learn, are shown a plain way, not only to play neatly in two parts, but also, in further progress, to play correctly and well in three obbligato parts, and, at the same time, not only to acquire good ideas, but also to work them out themselves, and, finally, to acquire a cantabile style of playing, and at the same time to gain a strong predilection for, and foretaste of, composition. The other, for use and practice of young musicians who desire to learn, as for those who are already skilled in his study for amusement. There can be no better testimony to Bach as a teacher than these short prefaces, written in his own fine hand upon the title pages of the two sets. For him, the greatest virtuoso of his day, virtuosity was nothing, and he taught those about him above all to seek to express only what was genuine and fine in music. So he continues to teach the world of musicians, though music has passed through fire and tempest since he wrote these pieces all but two hundred years ago in the castle at Curtin. Styles have changed, forms have changed, instruments have changed. The state, the world are no longer the same. Yet in every state and to every corner of the world, where there are men and women who have devoted their lives to music, there will Bach be found as the touchstone of all that is good in art. This is in essence his position at the present day in music, a position unique and special. He will always be the greatest of teachers. His music is profoundly mystical, and for this reason the secret of his extraordinary vitality will perhaps never be revealed, and it is nearly always intimate. In this, most different from Handel, his great contemporary, with whom he will ever be compared, though the startling contrast between them lead no nearer to the comprehension or just estimate of either. Handel is outspoken, Bach suggestive. The one compels, the other stimulates. In conclusion, we may once more draw attention to some of the salient points in his genius. As a man, he had keen practical knowledge, yet he was impulsive and ardent. He was unshakable in his convictions. He was generous but not always peaceable. And he was always quietly but profoundly thoughtful. Among his friends were men of prominence, knowledge and high social rank. The circumstances of his life kept him from the theatre, which was the goal of most composers of his time, but furthermore his genius was not of the dramatic kind, nor his nature one to seek public acclaim. He was, however, in the words of a contemporary, the prince of all players on the harpsichord and the organ, and was so recognised over a large part of Germany. His unmatched technique and composition was acquired by constant labour and a never-ending study of all available music, both Italian and French, as well as German, while he remained essentially a son of his race. The works of Couperin were known to him, those of Vivaldi and Corelli, of all the great German organists and composers, save only Heinrich Schütz, of the old Italian masters Palestrina, Lotti and Caldara. 
the forms of his day he mastered both those of ancient descent and those of more recent make and he invented no new forms he was first and foremost an organist the culmination of a long line of german masters his music for the organ rises higher than that of any of his predecessors largely because of the logical harmonic foundation upon which he built it it has never since been equalled to music for other keyboard instalments precursors of the pianoforte he brought a richness of harmony and of feeling not to be found in such music before his day the polyphonic forms especially the fugues were influenced by the organ style other forms such as the suites suggest the influence of french writers the so-called english suites the name of which has given rise to much discussion are the greatest suites in existence the suites for violin and cello alone are unique the polyphonic style in which many movements of them are written is characteristic of german violin music of the time the conciseness of form of the italian masters all his vocal works show the influence of the organ style which was the most natural and most familiar to him but in these he has incorporated forms such as recitative and da capo aria directed from the contemporary italian opera difficulties and improprieties of text affected the cantatas the passions especially that according to saint matthew are flawless in structure the perfection of the latter is largely due to his supervision of and arrangement of the plan and the text the mass in b minor is his most colossal work seeming however a less natural expression of his genius and the passion preludes fugues suites concertos in the old style the church cantata and the musical setting of the passion he brought to their highest point after his death other forms occupied composers so that he has not served as a model also the next age was preeminently the age of the orchestra the modern orchestra with its peculiar problems to the settlement of which bach contributed little or nothing the sonorous pianoforte persuaded composers from the organ the polyphonic style was abandoned or was radically modified thus the new era of haydn mozart and beethoven is seemingly completely severed from bach totally disconnected save for the links of a revised system of fingering for keyboard instruments and a satisfactory method of equal temperament but the new age was the age of the supremacy of harmony in music and the genius of bach often concealed behind the polyphonic fabric of his greatest works is essentially harmonic chords modulation chromaticism are the essence of his music in all his compositions they give the mysterious warmth they are the basis of his form the power of his suggestion that he might be free to modulate at will he so tuned his clavichord that all keys both major and minor could mingle through it and as initiative for his students to the beauties of harmony unrestricted he composed two series of preludes and fugues in every key which today seem an epitome of musical expression written for students they have taught every great composer from beethoven to richard strauss and claude debussy they open the way to his other and to his bigger works where the lover of music may so lose himself in wonder and deepest joy that he will say as many have said here is the beginning and the end of music
End of The Art of Music, Volume 1, The Pre-Classic Periods. Editor-in-Chief Daniel Gregory Mason.